We continue, um, this is our second to last week. Next week we finish up Acts, and we'll be done and move on. We're going to be hitting up so that you are, know. Uh, a little bit after Easter, we'll begin um, a series in the life of David, and working through First and Second Samuel, um, which I'm excited about. But we've got two more weeks in Acts, and this morning we come to a storm story, which is apropos, since it feels like we're in the bottom, the hole of a ship in here, and it's storming outside. Um, but so this, this morning we come to a fairly famous story from Acts chapter 27, where Paul is in a shipwreck in the midst of a storm, and God providentially preserves his life. I'm not going to read all of it because it's so lengthy. I'm going to give you a sense of it in just a second by showing you the outline of how um, the structure of Acts 27. But I want to read what is the pivotal turning point in the story, which is beginning in Acts in verse 20 and then reading through verse 26. Follow along in your own Bibles as I read out loud. Pick it up in verse 20. Now, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. All hope of her being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurring this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. This sends the reading of God's word. Praise be the Lord. Well, um, this morning I want to look at this theme. What does it look like for us to trust the promises of God in the midst of the storm? Or what do we need to focus on if we're going to trust the Lord's promises in the midst of the storm? And there's three things I want to see this morning. Before we get to that, I want to give it some context by showing you the structure of Acts chapter 27. Since we didn't read it all, but to show you how it works and to show you how pivotal verse 21 through 26 and how, um, uh, even in a, from a literary perspective, it is the turning point of the text. Throw that up. And I'm, again, I'm sorry that it's not super large here on the screen. There is in, um, particularly in ancient writing, they like to have various outlines. It was called chiasms. And you'd see these various different forms in the way they would give structures to this story. And this is a very common form in which you have um, various, they, they, part A uh, is significant and in, in similar to a, what they call A prime on the bottom end. And it creates this kind of shape to it. You, if you, any of you are poets, you can actually do this in your poetry, right? People will actually create designs in the way they write their poetry and, and they, the way they lay it out. But here's how it's laid out in, all the, in the various themes. Scene one is verses one through eight, all aboard, right? This is where Luke gives all, the, like, all these details about the various places they stopped in the Mediterranean. In fact, in, in antiquities, many uh, commentators look at what uh, Luke wrote here and say, this is the most detailed um, marine uh, expedition account we have in all of ancient history's writings. Even more than Homer's Odyssey uh, is this little brief account from Luke. But all aboard, so it details all the various places they went. Then scene two, verses nine through 12, we have Paul giving advice. They come to Crete and a couple of, a place where they have harbor. And it's entering that season of, uh, of the year where you don't necessarily want to be sailing, in which the storms become really bad. And Paul's a seasoned traveler, right? He's been 
been now traveling for many, many years of his life, and he's used to the tempests that are in the Mediterranean and advises the captain and the owner of the ship saying, I don't think we should leave port. But they decide to do it anyway, so they ignore Paul's advice. And that's when the things start to go badly. Verses, that's uh, part C in scene three, verses 13 through 20, things go really badly. In fact, rather rapidly in these six or seven verses, the whole account there is about how bad the storm is and that they are trying to do everything they can to save themselves and yet nothing works. And that brings us to where we picked up this morning in verse 20, where it says, because there is no sun or stars that appeared. Now, why would that be a big issue then? They don't have compasses and they don't have Google Maps, right? They don't have satellites. The sun and the stars are the compass. They can't figure out where they're going. They lose all hope, all sense that they can figure out where to go and and save themselves. And yet it's in that moment that Paul stands up and he gives this speech. This is the turning point in the text, verses 21 through 26, when God's gospel intervenes in the situation. That's what we read earlier. Then it begins to fall out flow back out and we call what we call C prime in scene five verses 27 through 32. Once again, things go badly. They're trying to throw things overboard. They're kind of, they're afraid they're going to bump into rocks. The, the, the things are getting more, the sea is getting more shallow and they're very concerned. So that's what's going on in part C. Then B, scene six verses 33 through 38. Once again, Paul gives them advice. His advice is this, eat something. Because we got some, we got some work to do before we hit ground. And then, lastly, A prime, scene seven, verse thirty-nine through forty-four. Everybody bail out as the ship hits the rock and breaks apart, and they all get to shore and they are all saved. This is the account, and this is the structure, the way it's told. But the key thing to highlight, and the place where we want to focus on, is that X. That is the turning point, scene four, where Paul speaks. And in Paul's speech, and in this account. Paul gives us three things that we need to look to in the midst of life storms. And listen, they are in a storm. And some of you are in a storm. You've walked in here today, and your life may not be, ultimately, your physical life may not be in danger. But the words of verse 20 are the words perhaps you've said about yourself or thought. All hope of being saved was at last abandoned. This may not be your physical life, but it may be something else. Perhaps you've abandoned hope for your marriage. Right, the context here of what they've done is they've done, the sailors have done everything they can to save the ship. And they're going, we've done everything. We're throwing our hands up. And some of you said, I've done everything I can to save my marriage. We have been to counselor after counselor after counselor. We've, we've taken communication training. We've had that conversation. We've been to that conference and nothing has worked. Or perhaps some of you, you've lost hope because your marriage already has disintegrated. You're separated. For some of you, you've abandoned hope because you can't see the stars. And literally what I mean by that is you don't know the God's direction for your life. You're a West Georgia student and you've changed your major for the ninth time. You're going on 10 years. We got six last laps and we still can't figure out our life. Even for those of you, you probably, you probably feel this more painfully as if you've just lost a job. And you're not entirely sure, where does, how is God going to provide? I, I, I threw myself there and now I don't know the God's direction for my life. Some of you, you feel like hope has abandoned you because you've done everything you can in order to get yourself out of the financial strait that you're in. You've pinched every penny you can find. You've gone to every friend. You've called in every favor. You've used every gift card. You've worked the extra job, and it still is not working. Some of you lost hope for your children, right? Well, all hope is abandoned. When they leave the home, they finally storm out that last time. You've pursued and you've pursued and you've pursued. 
Hearing the words from a doctor that says, we've done everything we can do, that's what they're experiencing here as sailors, as passengers. We've done all the chemotherapy. We've done all the radiation. There's nothing we can do to make you, but make you comfortable. That's when God's promise from Paul comes in. And that's what we need to hear. And here's three things that Paul looks to in order to ensure himself to be encouraged about the promise of God. Three things that we need in the midst of the storm. First, we need to recognize the providence of God in the storm. The providence of God in the storm. The whole chapter has God's sovereign providential fingerprints just all over it. Just everywhere. The angel comes and declares to Paul that God controls the future. He says this, Paul, you must stand before Caesar, and no one will lose their life. This is a promise from God. Now, how can God make such a promise? You can only make such a promise if you're in charge, if you run things. Luke paints an amazing picture here in these chapters that shows that it appears that everything in Paul's life is working against him. Right? He gets, he gets arrested and abused in Jerusalem. He then goes to Caesarea and he stands uh, trial before an unjust kings. Then they throw him in the jail. Everything is going way slower. You know, Acts has this feeling of, of moving really quickly. And yet, you know, in this account, Paul has just been sitting in jail in Caesarea for doing nothing for two years. It's just this little blip in the writings, but like two years, he's sitting in, in jail. Then he comes on to, on to the way Luke gives this account as they're, as they're tr- moving along on the, the ship. Everything about this, this journey, the wind is against them. It's pushing against them. Everything is difficult. He uses this language of the sailors are doing everything they can, even when there was good weather. This is a struggle. Now, Luke is actually using this account of the storm, and it has more significance than maybe it would mean naturally to you and me. But to the early readers, to the original readers of this, they understood that chaos, that the storm, storms and seas represented chaos and evil in the world. That they viewed chaos, like big storms on the seas, as being the work of the gods working through the natural world. That evil forces were at work, and that's actually what Luke is communicating here is that what Paul has in front of him is all of nature, and behind that, all the evil forces of this world are trying to keep God's plan from being carried out. And yet, what happens in chapter 28? Where does Paul land? Right where God said he would land. This is God's providence at work, that it doesn't matter what stands against you, that if it's God's plan to bring you someplace, for example, heaven, there is nothing that can stand in his way. There's nothing that can keep you from that place. So you have to understand and look to the providence of God. That's what Paul does. He sees God's hand in all of these things. That God's promise, that God is the one who sovereignly rules and reigns. And so when God promises to get you to Rome, Paul can have confidence because God's the one who owns, who runs the winds and the seas. He's the one who controls these things. And yet, I also want you to see this about how we ought to live in the midst of the storms. Paul, in the face of God's great providence and God's sovereign control over the wind and the waves, does Paul do nothing? No. Look at verse 26. He says this, but we, this is the last thing he says in the speech, but we must run aground on some some island. There's two musts. God comes to Paul and says, you must stand before Caesar. That's the sovereign providential piece. I'm controlling all things so that you can get to Caesar. And Paul's response is, okay, that's God's promise, and we must do something in light of God's promise. There's actually there's a significant theological thing going on here where what we have in this story is a great example 
of how God's sovereignty and human responsibility are held in tension and are communicated side by side in the scriptures. God tells Paul, hey, you're going to be all right. And Paul says, okay, in light of God saying I'm going to be all right, I'm going to go do something. I'm responsible to do something. God's promise, providence, and promises are actually accomplished through his man wisely carrying out actions on the boats. Look at verse 32, 32, give you an example. I'm going to give you two examples of this in Paul's life, how he uses common wisdom in order to bring about the promise that God has already told them about. Verse 30, and as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Now, why do they have to stay in the boat? Is there some sort of chicken soup for the soul lesson we should get here? We're not going to make it through life storms unless we all stay together. Now, that would be nice, and perhaps that would be true. But what actually is going on here is Paul is saying, these guys, who's trying to get off the boat? Is it all the passengers? No, it's the sailors. If you're going into a storm and are trying to land a ship, who do you need running the boat? You need the sailors. If the sailors leave, there is no way this is going to end well. Verse 33 and 34 is the second example. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them, take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you, take some food, for it will what? It will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Now, it's interesting. We see the sovereignty of God, God's promise, and man's actions, one being held in tension there. Not, Not a hair will perish from your heads, and yet you need to eat something. You've got to regain your strength because we have some things to do. Can you imagine going 14 days with hardly any food? Have you ever been, you ever been on one of those cleanse diets where it's like lemon juice and paprika or cayenne or whatever it is that you're supposed to And you see, it's just every day you're just carrying around this moronic bottle and this is all you can eat. About what happens after about 24 hours, 48 hours? Two things. One, you're really weak. And two, you're really cranky. You're really cranky. You're really irritable. Some people use those things to get rid of irritable bowel syndrome. Well, it takes care of the bowel, but it leaves the irritable right there with you. <laughs> it's kind of like light sour cream. Light sour cream is just sour. Um, well, that's what they're experiencing on the boat. They've had 14 days with no food. They are famished. They are probably yakking left and right because what happens on a boat for 14 days in the middle of a storm? These people are weak. And what Paul says, listen, we got some work to do, and so you better eat something because you need Strength. You see here, God is sovereign, and yet we are responsible. We are responsible within the midst of this. God holds humans responsible. Paul is not a fatalist or a determinist. He understands that while God has made promises and God determines the future, that God is also working through Paul's wise actions on the boat. I want to talk about this a little bit more because this bothers us, doesn't it? Because we tend to think about um, God's sovereignty and human responsibility as being kind of, it's an either or. It's either God is 100% in charge, he's a determinist, I don't do anything, I just sit back and get my lazy boy. That's how life's supposed to work. Or the other side is, I'm 100% responsible for my life. It's all about whether I can put myself up by my bootstraps in the face of the storm. I got to do this, 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 and this, and God has nothing to do with it. Yeah, that's not what the Bible says. That's how, how Paul acts here. Paul doesn't say it's an either or. He says it's a both and. Both God is sovereignly in control and you're to act. 
There's been a, there's a saying within the church world that's one of those things that people think might be in the Bible because it sounds kind of proverbial, but it's actually wrong, which is this, in the face of God saying, I'm in charge and I'm providentially in control of all things, we have this saying that goes something like this, let go and let God. But this is foolishness, and we never get that, that kind of statement in the scriptures. What we see in the scriptures is this, trust God and obey. Trust God and act. Trust God and do something. This is what God has brought. And you see that the human responsibility and God's sovereignty are held in tension. They're communicated side by side. We see it even in some of the highest, the most difficult things that happen in Scripture. For example, the very beginning of our look at Acts, in Acts chapter 2, at the first sermon in Acts, Peter stands up in front of the Jewish people and he says this, Jesus Christ was offered up according to this, the foreordination of God. God's sovereign, determined plan put Jesus on the cross. And yet, he says this, and you slew him with your wicked hands. What do we see in the tension there? It's God's plan, and yet man is responsible. God's promise, and yet you're responsible. They go hand in hand. It is not 80-20, it's 100 and 100. It's not 50-50, it's 100 and 100. This is not some sort of just sweet metaphor here. We are to trust God and we are to obey now, here's where I, I think we must hold these true truths if we're going to face life storms with any kind of competency and keep our marbles. Because if you, if you let me think of it this way, if you're entirely, if you just believe that God is entirely, it's utterly determined, you're simply going to be cynical, right? You, life storms means everything's against me, God hates me, there's nothing I can do about this, I'm going to sit back and just take it, woe is me, and despair, but that's not what we see. At the same time, we, if, if, it was, if Paul is not passive, he's active. He's not a man sitting on, on his haunches and just going, well, c'est la vie. We'll see what the storm happens. God's in charge. Now we ax. On the other side of things, we also don't see Paul running around like a chicken with his head cut off. Because on the other side, if we think we're entirely responsible and the plan, everything is about what we do and we're 100% responsible for our life and everything that happens is about what we do and has nothing in, in connection to God's larger plan, then, well, my goodness, the storms of life will be crushed by them. Right? I've already pointed out that the sailors, they've done everything they can. And that's the place you'll come, is if it's all about what you do to face up to the, life, the, life, the storms of life, you're going to go, man, I've done everything I possibly can. And you're just running around frantically, and you can't control it. But you either, we see them both, they're held in tension. God comforts us by saying, I have a plan for you. It's a good plan. And yet at the same time, he says, I use your actions, so get to work. He gives us courage and comfort, and he calls us to work. And they're held in tension together. Let me just, to be very specific in application for this. Because I, I think, at least this is my experience in my own life, but it's to speak to you men. You guys who are leading a relationship, leading children, leading a marriage, leading a company, whatever it may be. I, I read a book last year and on, it was called, by a guy named Larry Crabb. It was called Men of Courage. It had a previous name called The Silence of Adam. And he describes manhood as this. And the call that God has given to man, men is this, is that men are called to lead the way into the darkness. In other words, we're called to lead the way into the chaos and he goes to the place where Adam, what we see, where is Adam placed in? A beautiful, perfect garden. It's perfectly in order. There is no chaos. There is beauty there. There is structure there. There is life there. And that what Adam is supposed to do is to expand the garden into the chaotic places of the world. Where there is no structure to bring order. Where there is no, where there is no beauty to bring beauty and life. 
to bring order in those places. But guess what? When you go into the dark places where there's chaos, it's hard. And therefore, the fallen man, what's our response to the chaos of life? The most usual response is this, is passivity, passivity, where you get passive male leaders who would sit back and rather have somebody else lead for them and are not willing to stand up and move into the dark places. And here, here, give me an example from someone I spoke to a number of years ago who had a very difficult relationship with his daughter. And I was actually speaking to his wife. And she said this, that for years and years and years, he battled with his daughter and trying to call her to Jesus. But he said when she was about 16 years old, there was a place he came in my room and he said, I give up. I give up. You're going to have to raise her. I'm done. Now, what was he doing? He was seeding leadership. He was saying, I'm going to sit. I'm going to take a passive role because this is hard. And I don't know what the outcome is, but listen. Listen, if you're a man and you believe that God has a good plan for your life, then you can stand up and you can be courageous. And at the same time, you also don't have to be crushed because you know it's not about everything that you're doing. That there are larger forces at work than simply what you can bring about. Don't be a passive leader. Be a man who takes charge. And the means by which you can do that, the place of, of motivation and power to get that is you run to the providence of God and the call. For you to act. So that's the first thing I want you to see. In the midst of life's terms, you need to see the providence of God and your calling in the midst of it. The second thing I want you to see is this, though. That you need to see that God, has some, God possesses something in the midst of the storm. He possesses you. That's the second thing you've got to see. The possession of God in the storm. His possession is you and me. Verse 23, look at this. Before Paul even speaks, For this very night there stood before me an angel of, the, of God. To what? To whom I belong and worship. When Saul says, I belong to the Lord, that is covenantal language. We sang about that in one of the songs. His covenant, his love. That there is God has come and promised to us something. He has bound himself to us relationally. This is how God speaks about who we are. This is how Paul sees himself. When God comes to the people of Israel... And he says, you, Israel, you will be my people and I will be your God. He says that at the beginning of the journey through the desert. A difference. Honestly, it's a desert. But at the beginning, he says, you are my people. Who is it that you say my, that you've referred to in such possessive language? It's people that you have intimate relationship with, right? The people who I refer to as my are my Lila and my Cade and my Meredith. Unless it's a person of intimacy, it's just kind of weird. Like, if I were to say, my Ethan, that's just creepy, right? Like, I mean, that's, we, we know each other a little bit. I mean, we've shook, shook hands and given each other high fives at Gallery Row, but we ain't there yet, right? He ain't mine, nothing, right? So it's only people I have an intimate relationship with, that there's something deeper going on. Paul says, I am not my own. Here's how you know, I am bought with a price. That God has redeemed you, he calls you his. This is the, the imagery, the most poignant imagery we get of our relationship with God. It's always relational. It's always covenantal. For example, God says we are his bride. Nothing is going to tear the bride from the arms of Jesus Christ. In fact, one of the, some of you know this verse, Song of Solomon. It may be the only verse you're allowed to know from Song of Solomon. But you know this verse. Chapter 6, verse 3, it says this. I am my beloved's and my beloved is what? Mine. The possessiveness of that relationship. You know what the, why the church is called the church? The Greek word that undergirds the word church is the word kyrike. You know what it literally means? Those who belong to the Lord. This is who you are, church. If you're going to make it through life storms, you have to know who you belong to. We belong to God as his children as well, right? 
He wears his bride as his children. That's what he calls mine. We belong to God as a child belongs to their father. What would you think of a father who, when their child is crying and in suffering, doesn't run towards them? This is actually the imagery that Jesus will constantly use. He'll go from a lesser to greater than. He'll say, my goodness, he used to be talking about God's provision. He'll say, my, you know, when your child comes and asks you for a bread and you're a terrible father, you won't give him a snake in response. You'll give him bread. How much more will your father in heaven provide for your needs? Because he is so much greater. It, I actually find, you find it rather naturally. That in the midst of suffering, when I found this with my kids, right? If Kay come, is, comes in, he just wrecked his bike, and he comes in, and he's crying, and he's bleeding, and he's battered, and I pick him up, and what do, what do you find yourself saying? My boy, my boy, I'm so sorry. Possessive language in the midst of suffering. That's what you hear God, how God, he refers to Paul and how he refers to you. If you're going to get through life storms, you have to hear the voice of God saying, you are mine. You are mine in this. Here, I actually want to draw back on the sovereignty of God thing again for just a moment. For many of you, the sovereignty of God is merely, is merely this cold doctrinal stance that stands very distant. It speaks of God's power and his dominion and his rule and his control, and it feels distant. But I want you to understand the sovereignty of God will never be sweet to you. The providence of God will never be sweet to you until you see that God's sovereignty is for you. Generally, Muslims believe just as we do in the sovereignty of God. But they don't connect it to God's care. Therefore, they would say that God knows when all the, you know when your hairs of your head are going to fall. They know about the length. He knows about the length of your days. He controls your life, and yet, and yet, He is not good to you. The providence of God is the wedding of God's sovereign, powerful rule, and the reality that we are His children, and that He is for us. He is for us. That's the second thing you got to see. Here's the question, though. The question you have to see is that I would think that if the, what makes storms so difficult, that Paul knows this, and many of you know this. Okay, God's in charge. He's, prov- he's providential. Okay, cool. And God calls me his. But if I'm in a storm, does that mean he's abandoned me? Does that mean, does that mean in his providence he's actually, is this his wrath? Is it his sovereign plan to destroy me? How do we know that the storm that I'm in is not God punishing me? How do I know that he has not abandoned me, that he has said, oh my goodness, I, once I called you mine, but now I call you not mine. Because he said that to Israel. And then he flipped it later on. You are not mine. How, how, do we, how do we know he's not saying that to us in the midst of life storms? That, his, that the storms he's brought into our life is not a punishment. Well, that's the third thing I want you to see, and that's God's presence. Who's in the boat with you? There's something interesting going on in this account that Paul appears to be kind of the representative man for the whole boat. God doesn't, I mean, he's interested in everybody in the boat, but he appears to be interested in them because of one man, because of Paul. Look at verse 24, and he said this, Paul, do not be afraid. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. In other words, I'm going to sail you, and because with, I'm going to save you, and because all these people are with you, I'm going to save them too. And then look at verse 42 and 43. The soldier's plan, it says, was to kill the prisoners. This is actually, they, they've run aground, the ship is breaking apart, everyone is about to leap off the boat, and the soldiers are about to kill all the prisoners on the boat because Roman soldiers would have been held um, responsible, would have been on their head if people escaped. 
And they're saying, okay, I, we're just going to have to kill these guys instead of letting them escape. But Paul says this, but the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. And he ordered all those who could swim to jump overboard and make for land. It was because of the prisoner's connection to Paul that they were saved. All the lives were spared because of one man, because of one guy. Now, there is a storm, a number of storm stories in the Bible, right? And they almost, they're always about one guy. What's the first storm story? We usually have VBSs based around these, by the way, to make it pretty easy. The first storm story is what? Noah and the ark. Do we even know everybody else? We know everybody else's names if you are really good at Bible trivia, but nobody else knows about Noah's ark except for Noah. We don't know about any of the names of anybody else. We'd never talk about other people's names. We know about one guy. He's the representative. What's the other? What's the other place that we talk about someone on a boat? Has another animal. Jonah. I want to compare the story of Jonah. By the way, the third one is when Jesus is in the boat with his disciples. And the fourth one is here with Paul. But I want you to look at Jonah in particular. Jonah's a man, it's so similar to Paul, except things are quite the opposite. Jonah is a man who's called on a mission to share the gospel to the Ninevites, just as Paul is called on a mission to share the gospel to the people in Rome. Paul is doing everything in his power to get to Rome. What's Jonah doing when he gets that call? He hightails it in the exact opposite direction. Jesus, I mean Paul, on the way to his mission to communicate uh, to, to Rome, he has a storm. What happens to Jonah? How does God come after Jonah? With a storm. And is this a storm of God's blessing upon Jonah's life? It is known as a storm of God's wrath. In fact, what you see is because Jonah is in the boat and they're in the midst of the storm, it's actually quite similar to this account. All the sailors in the boat that Jonah's with, they're doing what? They're throwing everything overboard. They're saying, we're going to do everything we can to save ourselves. And finally, Jonah comes to them and goes, you know what, guys? I know why God has sent this storm. He's after me. And until you throw me overboard, this wrath ain't going ain't gonna to end. And so what do they have to do? In order for the storm to cease, in order for the wrath of God to cease upon Jonah and upon that boat and everybody who is with him, what has to happen? Jonah has to be thrown into the sea. He has to be consumed by the storm. That's what has to happen there. Now, in Paul's story, that's not the case. Everyone is saved. Now, here's the question. Whose boat are you in? Which boat are you? When you're in a storm, you've got to ask this question. Am I in Jonah's boat or am I in Paul's boat? And you're going to be asking your life is, man, am I as good as Paul? Can I live up to Paul? Like, man, Paul is like endured persecution. And of course, of course, God's storm in Paul's life is not wrathful. But my goodness, is this storm in my life? Is this Jonah's storm? Is, am I, have I sinned? Have I run from God? And here's how you know that is not the case if you're in Christ Jesus. In Matthew chapter 12, there's this interesting account where Jesus says, he's having, he's having a conversation. And he says, call me the true Jonah. Call me the true Jonah. He says this, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days. But a greater Jonah is here. He says, I'm the ultimate, the better, and the true Jonah. Now, what in the world does that mean? What he means by this is that that the storm that you and I deserve is the storm that Jonah got. That the storm that Jonah got is the wrath of God coming in in fury upon him. And that's the storm that you and I deserve. Because we run from God. And it's the question that we're always asking. God, is this storm part of your wrath, your hatred, you're coming after me, you're punishing me, you're crushing me? Is that what this is about? And we have to answer, if we're honest with ourselves, is, man, I deserve the storm of wrath. I deserve God to come after me with this kind of storm. Yet Jesus says this, if you believe in me, you can know this. 
that I took the storm of God's wrath for you. I was thrown into the sea. The storm consumed me so that you can be saved from the storm of God's wrath. See, here's the question. How can you know that suffering, whatever suffering and the storm that's going on in your life, how can you know that it's not God punishing you? It's because Jesus has already taken the punishment for you. Therefore, that means all other storms in your life are merely God's good providence in your life to advance the gospel and to advance his good in your life. Because there is no punishment left for you because Jesus has taken the storm of God's wrath upon himself. That's the good news. That's the presence. That means this. The question is this. Now are you in Jonah's boat or Paul's boat? Are you in Jesus' boat? Where he is the representative. Where you are saved because of what he did. That you're saved for the one man. The one man in the boat who matters. And because of your connection to him, God saves you too. That's the story that we have to look to. God's presence in the boat with us. Now here's the question. How do we apply this? I'm going to give you an incredibly simple way to apply this because you already do it. Isn't that nice? It's going to be like, you want to know how to get in shape? Drink coffee. They're like, oh, man, that's awesome. And then like all, all the articles, you're like, it's like, hey, we found out that wine will help you live another 10 years longer. You're like, sweet. <laughs> I can do that. We can play that game. Here, here's the application this morning of how you appropriate this truth in, the, in your life. It's this way. That you break bread and you give thanks to God. In verse 33 and 34, Paul does this. I think it's going to be on the screen for you. It says this. That Paul, he calls them to eat. And he says this, therefore I urge you, take some food for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Real quick, verse real quick. Taking a piece of bread and eating it in that moment. They haven't been eating. Why have they not been eating? Because they're so distraught. They've lost hope. They're despairing. They're probably seasick. They're, they have no hope that they're going to live. You don't eat if you don't think you're going to live. In a moment of crisis, you ever been in one of those, in a place where you're with people who are waiting for a family member to die? In the midst of a crisis? You ever been with people who are sitting while they're waiting for a, a loved one who's been in a terrible accident to get out of surgery? Is there a whole lot of eating going on? No. Everyone is pent up, and they're tense, and they're anxious, and they're stressed, and they're sorrowful, and they're perhaps despairing. And so what do they do? They don't eat. Sometimes the daily act of eating is to say, God, God, I don't, I don't like what tomorrow seems to be holding. You see, they're facing, they're facing a shipwreck. There's promises that they're going to be saved, but, you know, almost drowning is not a good day at sea. I don't like what tomorrow is going to hold, but you know what? It's an act of faith for me to take this bread and say, I need the strength of Jesus. I need the strength that you're going to provide. I'm going to take this, I'm going to eat, and I'm going to face tomorrow because of your promises to me. The second thing I want you to see, though, he goes on. He says, when he had said these things, he took bread. You see me do this a lot, about once a month. I say it. And Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, that's not what Paul says. Paul's not serving the Lord's Supper here. Some people think that's what he's doing. It's actually quite similar to it. What he's doing here, though, is something quite more general. To the Christian, we could read that and say, in application, 
hey, come take the Lord's Supper. It's a means of God reminding you of his grace. That's nice. But Paul is with a bunch of people who don't love Jesus. And Paul in 1 Corinthians said, don't serve the Lord's Supper to people who don't love Jesus. So that's not what he's doing. But what is he acknowledging? He's giving thanks. He's in the middle of a storm. They're in, the middle, they're in an ongoing shipwreck. And he says, take some food and let me give thanks to God. What is he doing? He's acknowledging even in the midst of life storms that yes, one, we need strength. And then two, we're acknowledging God's presence with me. That even in the midst of this, God is the one who has provided this. Whether it's a piece of bread or that's a deep suffering in my life, God is here with me and he is present with me. See, the great liturgy, one of the great disciplines of your life, could you bring it back? Because we, we've, made, we've made dinnertime prayer a cute thing, right? And you have songs, engage your kids, but could you actually, this is a liturgy. This is a daily practice to say, God, man, work was really bad today. I've got a tough night ahead of me. My wife and I, man, we've, we've got to, you know, we've got to fight. Wait, you know, we started it yesterday. We've got to complete it tonight. But I give thanks to you that no matter the storms, you're the one who's present with me and you have provided for me both through Jesus and through this physical sign of your bread that you'd give this to me. It's this poignant, easy, practical way to remember the providence of God in your life, that you belong to God because fathers feed their children, and lastly, that God is present with me. As you engage in these things, as you remember these things, and as you do these simple disciplines, may the Lord bless you and keep you in them, even in the midst of life storms. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, we thank you that while you have given us, who are in the midst of suffering, great doctrinal truth, that you're sovereign and that you're good. We thank you that your most poignant and powerful means of answering us when we are crying out in the midst of suffering is you sent your son to be with us, to enter into our sufferings, and to say to us, I am present with you, my brother, my sister, my friend, my daughter, my son, my bride. That you sent your spirit inside of us to say, Abba, Father, to convince us that we are indeed possessed by God. We are indeed his children, his spouse, his loved one, that we are his. And so gracious God, I, just pastorally, I wanna, I, I wanna pray for those in this room right now who feel like they are in the midst of a storm. God, I pray that these truths would become imminent to them. That they would know that they belong to Jesus. That God is with them and is present with them in their suffering. That he is picking them up and saying, my child, my son, my daughter, I'm so sorry for your sorrow and your suffering. Would you trust me in the middle of it? Pray they take bread and they would thank you, God, even in the midst of the storms and say, God, I don't know why you brought me here, but I know you provide for me in the midst of it. And that they would thank you for it. Lord, would you give us that strength? We thank you that we can look to Jesus who did this all perfectly for us. In his name we pray, amen.